One of the most common pastoral issues that I've faced over many years is the issue of assurance, the issue where Christians of various times struggle with their assurance. As Christians, we come here regularly on a Sunday morning, and those of you visiting in your churches, you have the same situation. And you hear messages about finding our peace and joy in Christ, living a life that pleases God, seeing fruit and growth in our lives. And sometimes as a result of hearing these messages, you may feel this is not my experience. I'm not sure how much fruit I see in my life. I don't know how much peace and joy that I now have. For some of you, these thoughts may just be passing thoughts. Some of them may exist for a short time, some for perhaps even a longer time. Perhaps you're constantly battling with these doubts and with these feelings. <clears throat> I'm sure of one thing, that all of us, at some stage or other, will go through this. I know I have. Uh, there have been times in my life start to ask the question, am I really saved? Am I really? I evaluate my life, I, wow, maybe I'm not. So I know that I'm in good company this morning because Spurgeon, Calvin, Luther, C.S. Lewis, amongst many others, have all struggled in their Christian lives with doubts about salvation. In fact, Spurgeon says this, I think that when a man says that they have never doubted, it is quite time for us to doubt him. We say we've never doubted. We perhaps need to doubt that person who's saying that. And although we may come to the same question of the same doubts, we do not come with the same struggles and doubts, or the same struggles that have led us to those doubts. Often it's, it's caused by our sin, our failures, and a feeling that we're not living up to the mark. But the authors of Scripture were only too aware of these struggles. And so when they write in the, in the Word of God, these authors throughout the Scripture, they write with a degree of certainty about their faith and their salvation, and they write in a way to, to transmit that to the readers, to us, for those who read the Scriptures. You know, sometimes I think we forget that, the, particularly in the New Testament, the Bible is written to believers, written to Christians. It, it talks to the non-Christian, but it's written primarily to Christians. The Apostle John in 1 John 5.13 writes, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know, that you may know you have eternal life. We've already heard, I think this morning, Paul writes in Romans 8, 8, 38, 39, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul was sure. He was sure about himself and he, he uses the term us. Nothing will separate, not, he's just not saying him, but us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The writers of the Hebrews speaks of God's oath and promise as a sure and steady anchor of the soul. And with all that Job went through, 
with all the challenges and struggles and trials that he went through, he was able to say, I know, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Writers were confident, they were sure. And in John's case, he writes so that we may know. God wants us to live with an assurance of our salvation. That assurance will bring peace and joy into our lives. It will motivate us in evangelism because we'll be so affected by it. We'll want others to know. Spurgeon says, full assurance is not essential to salvation, but it is essential to satisfaction. So if you doubt, it's not essential to your salvation, but it can be an effect on your satisfaction in God and in Christ. However, the danger of pursuing assurance, having recognised perhaps we're in that place sometimes, The danger of pursuing assurance is we fall into either legalism, focusing on works, our works for our salvation, or the other extreme where we discount good works entirely for our salvation and presume on the grace of God, called antinomianism. Both these pitfalls, both these situations must be avoided. And although assurance can ebb and flow as we walk through life, to the circumstances and experience of life. God wants assurance for all of us, not just for some Christians, not just for those who are in full-time ministry. He wants all of us, while we're here on planet Earth, to be assured. And as John writes in his first letter, he's writing to all who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. To all who believe. Not all who believe and do X, Y, Z, to all who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John was writing to all those who believe in the personal work of Jesus Christ so that they would know to be assured not that you will get eternal life, but you have it. But those of us this morning who believe we can know that we have eternal life. You already have it. So this morning we're going to look at the reasons that cause us to doubt our assurance, and then we're going to look at the biblical basis for resting in our assurance of salvation. So read just two points this morning. The first area we're going to look at is reasons for doubting our salvation. And before I mention these three reasons, I do want to say this to to cover this, that Overarching these reasons, we need to recognize there is an accuser of the brethren. Revelation 12.10 tells us there is an accuser of the brethren, and his name is Satan. So in all these areas that we're going to look at, and his weapons are lies, trying to build these these things that come across our lives and, and exaggerate them and accuse us, overarching these reasons, we need to recognize there is this accuser who brings lies to us. So the first area we're just going to touch on is scriptures that cause us to doubt. These are the reasons for doubting our salvation. Now, some passages in scripture that can unsettle us. Have you found that? Sometimes you look at, you know, 2 Corinthians 13, verses uh, 5 to 6, where Paul says, examine yourself. 
Hebrews, speaking of those who have once been enlightened, it's impossible to be restored. Hebrews 10, 31, speaking of God judging his, pe- his people, the writer says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then we have other scriptures that you're probably aware of. We don't have time this morning to look at each of these scriptures, to unpack them. But suffice it to say, they're not scriptures that those who believe in the personal work of Jesus Christ should cause to doubt their salvation. They're not there for us to doubt as a result. But I'm going to look this morning, going to keep in, in, in John, uh, the book of John, or the, sorry, the, the letter of John, I should say, 1 John, his first letter. It's a letter that we've recently studied in RBT, so I trust that's still familiar with most of us in the room. In this letter, John says 37 times in 30 verses, I want you to know, or I know, or we know. Expressions about knowing. Not wondering, not thinking maybe, but knowing. See, John's purpose in this letter, which is really a circular letter, is to bring believers to a place of confidence in Christ. That was his very purpose. But John raises some some questions, some tests we we looked at a few months ago. But these these tests, these these questions that he's asking, are questions not not, not, uh, not to cause us as believers to doubt, but to encourage us. It was never his intention to cause to doubt. We, questions like, do I affirm, in ch- chapters 4 and 5, do I affirm the truth about Jesus? Do I love other believers? Is my allegiance to the world? And two things about these tests that we need to bear in mind. Firstly, John had in mind a whole group of people who had been members of these churches, but had recently denied Jesus was the Christ. And secondly, we need to keep in mind the scope of John's tests. He wanted us to look at the whole of our lives, not just one particular area or one particular moment, to evaluate our lives. So suddenly on the day that you, you commit a sin that's really troubling you, don't focus on that. We're going to come to this a bit more in a moment. That's what, not what he's intending here. In fact, Greg Gilbert says this concerning these questions. This is going to come up. Even as he lays out three tests or marks, their purpose is not ultimately to make Christians say, oh no, I'll never live up to that, but rather, okay, I can see those realities in myself. Not perfectly, not completely, but they're there. In other words, he recognized that if you are a believer, this is John, these evidences of grace will, in, will be in your life. They will be in your life to some measure. Because if you are truly a believer, if you're trusting in the personal work of Jesus Christ, God's grace will be active in your lives. Because there isn't anything we can do outside of God's grace anyway. So if we are saved, if we are truly believers, God's grace will be active. And so his tests were to encourage us in our faith. The worst mistake we can make is to apply these tests, these, see these deficiencies, and then try and fix the problem ourselves. In 1 John 3, verse 6, he speaks of no one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. And you can read that scripture, and you think, well, 
That's not true of me. I keep on sinning. What John is referring to here is not their believers who sin, but it's a life characterized by willful rebellion against God. Just willful rebellion. Not a heart to live for God and failing, but a rebellious heart. The second area I want to look at is lack of sufficient faith, just briefly. Sometimes we can look around the church and we see folks with what it appears they have a strong faith. And, and, you know, comparison is always a dangerous pastime. It's not something that I'd recommend, but it's something that so often we do. And one thing that can worry Christians, is my faith good enough, strong enough, or pure enough to meet God's standard? That's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. The right question is, what is my faith in? What or who am I trusting and hoping in and relying upon to secure my salvation? And if your answer to that question this morning is my faith is in Christ, then the answer to the question whether my faith is good enough, strong enough or pure enough is, yes, it is. Yes, it is. And when we lack faith, when we, we feel that we, we, we lack the faith that, that we, we believe God desires from us, then we need to be like the, the father of the sick boy and say, I believe, help my unbelief. You know, faith ultimately is a gift from God. And we need to see it as that. So, if that's a problem for you, if that's a question for you, look at the right question. Who are you trusting in? Who are you relying upon to secure your salvation? And the third area I want to spend a little bit more time on is that we still sin. We still sin. We evaluate our lives, and not only do we see that sin still exists in us, but sometimes it seems that as we grow in sanctification, as we put sin to death, we become aware of even more sin. Come along on a Sunday morning, and you, be, you listen to God's word, and you think, wow, you know, I didn't realize that I sin in that area. Some of us this morning might think it is possible uh, for us as Christians that if we commit a sin so bad, we can lose our salvation. I wonder if you have, any of you have thought that this morning. Could you commit a sin that was so bad we could lose our salvation? A question for you this morning. Why do you think you're not committing it right now? Why would you think there's a sin so bad that you would lose your salvation? Because all of us, all of us, every hour of every day, commit sin. So why do we not think that that doesn't undermine our salvation? If you think that salvation can be lost through your sin, and if you think you're not losing it at this very moment, then I would suggest your understanding of sin is inadequate. The Bible teaches us that all sin is abhorrent to God and so awful that if our salvation could be lost because of it, we'd lose our salvation every day. 
the more we understand the significance of sin and the pervasiveness of sin, it will help us to focus on the gospel and God's amazing grace. Being aware of sin is not a place we should stay at. It's a place that we, we go from to God's grace. It's a place that causes us to draw on God's grace. It causes us to go to the cross of Christ. It's not a place that we should stay in, but, it's, but we need to see the pervasiveness of sin and the abhorrence of sin and how significant it is of sin because then we will see, that's what sin is, because then we'll see just how wonderful grace is, how amazing it is. That's why we can sing often, we sing, I think the other week we sang, though our sins are many, his mercy is more. You woke up this morning, his mercies are new every morning. Your sin of yesterday or even this morning should have caused you not to wake up. His mercy is more. We commit sins that should cause us to suffer God's wrath, but because of his grace. But if your sin is causing a concern about your salvation, I want you to encourage you this morning. The fact that you're concerned, the fact that you're concerned is a strong evidence that you're saved. So many times people have come to me, this is the biggest area I would say I've faced in terms of counselling people who, who struggle with insurance because of sin. And I often say to them, you know, because you've come, because you're concerned, that's an evidence of salvation. The people outside the church, they carry on sinning. They don't go to try and find someone and say, oh, I'm concerned about my sin. I'm not talking about morality or things of that nature, but the sort of sins that, that we would be aware of, a sin of pride, a sin of idolatry that we struggle with or we wrestle with all the time. As I said earlier, Revelation tells us there is an accuser and he accuses the believers day and night. And Revelation tells us how to overcome the accuser by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. The blood of Jesus gives us acceptance to a holy God. And it's his word we use to do battle with his accusations. You know, when Jesus was in the desert, Satan came to Jesus and tempted him. What did Jesus use to rebuff the temptation? He used the word. He quoted the word back to him. And so that's why when we encourage us to, to read and abide in his word, it's so that we are able, through his word, to rebuff the temptation and the lies of the accuser. So having seen some of the reasons that cause us to doubt our salvation, I want us to look at the, at the biblical basis for our assurance. Now the Bible gives us four main sources for our assurance. I'm going to mention them in, as the four, but then I'm going to sort of mesh them in together a bit. The four main sources, the gospel of Christ, the promises of God, the fruits of obedience, and the witness of the Spirit. Here we have four sources for our assurance, but not all the same in purpose and waiting. They don't all have the same weight. They don't all have the same purpose. Let me explain. The driving forces when we have doubts about 
our assurance of salvation. A driving force is to find our assurance in the, is in the gospel of Christ and the promises of God. They should be the driving forces. So when we feel have, we have doubts, when we're struggling with our salvation, our assurance, those are the areas that we go to. They become the driving forces. The confirmation in the fruits is found in the fruits of obedience and the witness of the Spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. The driving force is the gospel and the promises of God. Confirmation of that comes through the fruits of obedience and the witness of the Spirit. So driving forces of assurance is what we need to, to press into the greater understanding and growth in faith, the greater our sense of assurance will be. The fruits of obedience should not be the driving force of our assurance, but a confirming sense of our assurance. I hope this is becoming clear, because we shouldn't put them all on the same level, because that's where we can start to hit problems. So therefore, we do not put our faith in the fruits for assurance, but it can serve, can serve to confirm. And I believe this is where, just digressing slightly, this is where as a church we can encourage one another. We can be an aid to one another. Because so often we, we, we fail to see the fruits in our own lives. You know, how many times do you sit and listen to a message and you... you you, you, you hear kind of all the negative. It's like, it's like this morning, I haven't meant to say this, but you know, if, I, if I said 10 great things to you and one negative, you will go home thinking of the one negative. You'll forget the 10. You go. And it, we, don't see often, we, can't, we don't see the fruits. Uh, we don't see the fruit of obedience in our own lives so often. So we need one another to encourage and share and, 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 uh, and see evidences of God's work and grace in our lives. And encourage each other with that. Because that can, that can help us. The witness of the Spirit, however, is a gift from God that gives our souls a sense of comfort and assurance. I wish we had more time to go through that this morning, but, but we don't. But if we don't see the gospel and the promises of God as the driving force, the danger will be that if we are feeling a lack of assurance due to seeing our own sins, we can think that the solution is therefore to focus on that sin and try to do better in our works, which will ultimately lead us to a focus on self and not on God. The very thing that perhaps has opened up the doubt and the, and, and the problem, if you like, or the, the concern about assurance, maybe because of sin, often it is because of sin, or lack of fruits. Hear a message on the fruits. Lack, I didn't see that. I don't see that fruit. And we drive ourselves into getting more fruit, trying to deal with the sin. And what we've done is we focused on us and self rather than God. Greg Gilbert says this, the way to respond to a lack of assurance is to focus on and put weight on the driving forces of assurance, the promises of God and the, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we do so, the result will be a greater confidence in our salvation and an increase in the kind of godly life and works 
that indicate true salvation. See the, thing, the thought here? The driving force is to put our focus, our weight on the gospel and the promises of God. And that will create, that will bring about fruit. That will bring about a desire to live obedient for Jesus. Our confidence of our salvation must be grounded on the gospel. True assurance will grow from a realization of our hopelessness and as a result we will be driven to Christ and the cross. Hopelessness in ourselves. Singing this morning, our lives hidden in Christ. That's why, that's what makes the difference. That's what makes the difference between you and me and the man in the street, or the woman in the street, or the unbeliever. Our lives are hidden in Christ. When we do that, we'll find ourselves resting and trusting only in Christ. Realizing our hopelessness will bring us to assurance through Christ. Otherwise, we will try and gain assurance through, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? Aren't I a wonderful Christian? Aren't I very gracious? Aren't I very loving? I'm, you know, that's the danger. The more we cut the root of self-assurance, the more we will grow in full assurance and be confident in our acceptance to God. The Apostle Paul writes this in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Justified by faith, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through Christ we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Paul says we have access to the Father through Christ by faith into this grace in which we stand. And Hebrews says not only do we have access into the presence of God, but that we can do that with full assurance of faith. We come with full assurance. That's where God wants us to, the place he wants us to be. And that confidence that we can have is not going to be based on our works, our sanctification, or anything else about us, but it's based on Christ's work for us. I wonder, do you ever think sometimes that Jesus, through his work, got me into, into the kingdom? Now what I have to do is prove I belong or I'm worthy. You ever thought that? I'll tell you, a test, test for you is when you've blown it, do you get to the point of saying, oh Lord, I'll pray more. I'll read more. I'll attend home group more. I'll never miss a Sunday morning. That will be an indication of what you're doing. Hebrews 10, 19 to 22 cuts right across this thinking as we did nothing to gain access to the presence of God. We did nothing for our salvation. We did nothing to gain access to the presence of God. It is by the blood of Jesus that gives us every right to be there and to be there with full assurance. The problem is so often that we 
going to have a tendency for our minds and hearts to find a way. When we start doubting, doubting our assurance, doubting whether God loves us, we try ourselves to kind of find a way for self-assurance where we need to drive, as it were, into, into, into the gospel and into the promises of God. We need to recognize from beginning to end, it's all of grace. That's why we sing amazing grace. It's truly amazing. So we need to be careful not to transfer our focus onto good works for our assurance so that when we've done them, we say to themselves, great, now I feel better about myself. Great, I've done these things. I've improved. I pulled my socks up. Some people would use that expression, others wouldn't. But put, you know, I've done better. Now I can feel good about myself. That's not where God wants us to go. To do that would be to shift our reliance on self and on Christ and God's grace. Titus 3, 4, 7 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Saviour, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When the goodness, a loving kindness of God, our Saviour, appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. From beginning to end, we've done nothing to merit this wonderful salvation. We've done nothing to uh, receive God's grace. And that's why it's grace. (laughs) Nothing we've done. And pressing into faith and trusting God and his promises is the way to build confidence in our salvation. You know, thinking about this, you get various laws come out or various policies come out from government and often the expression is, well, the devil's in the detail. The devil's in the detail. You know, when it comes to God's promises, there's no devil in the detail. You know, we're not going to get to the gates of heaven and Peter stands there and said, ah, you know what, you didn't, you didn't read paragraph 506, clause 4, that says, you know, you should be praying at least three times a day. Sorry. We're not going to be shocked. There's no devil in the detail. There's no, there's no subsections. There's nothing other than God's word for us to rely on and his promises. We're not going to be shocked. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, verse 5. Sorry, 1 Peter 1, 3, 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What to? An inheritance. I've heard it already this morning that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation to be revealed in the last time. We can be confident that we have an inheritance kept in heaven 
by God's power for the ultimate salvation of ourselves. So we often say we are saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. And that promise that God says to keep in heaven our inheritance for our salvation to be revealed in the last time, we can totally rely on. Not because I'm saying it this morning. Not even because Peter said it. Peter is speaking the very words of God. Peter is speaking God's word here. You know, as I was thinking about this this morning, I, there are so many promises, so many wonderful promises that we could go through. We just don't have enough time. I'd encourage you. I mean, years ago, I'm not necessarily recommending this, but years ago, I used to have a promise box. Anyone remember the promise box? You go every day, pick a promise out. I'm, I'm not necessarily recommending We do have one. I don't use it, but we do have one. But, but read the promises of God. Get into, start looking at the promises of God. Get a, get a concordance and look. look there's various um, um, study guides that can help you find the promises of God. We don't have time to do that. But I do want to read this to you this morning because when I read this, it so affected me. This is Martin Luther. This will come up. By a wonderful exchange, our sins are no longer ours but Christ. And the righteousness of Christ, not Christ, but ours. He has emptied himself of all his righteousness, that he might clothe us with it and fill us with it. And he has taken our evils upon himself, that he might deliver us from them. Isn't that glorious? (laughs) It's just reading that, Embracing that, I know it's Luther, not God's word, but it is God's word, summing up God's word. The great exchange, as it's often called. You know, we, we give Christ our sin, he gives us his righteousness. Should be a real encouragement to us. You see, my confidence this morning is not in myself to deliver me from evil. But it is, as Luther says, he himself has taken our evils. He, has, he himself has taken our evils upon himself. A wonderful exchange has taken place. Now listen, there's no further exchange. There's nothing you and I can do once that exchange has taken place where God comes along, or Jesus comes along and says, hang on a minute, taking off your clothes of righteousness, I'm going to give you back your sins. Ain't going to happen. And that's the confidence that we need to live in. Again, as Spurgeon says, not, not if you have doubts that, that that's necessary for salvation. We want, God wants to live, as the, as the writers of Scriptures, in, in that place of peace and satisfaction in Christ, a joy in Christ. Uh, just reading, some, someone was saying, you know, not... Not that we just know these things in a forensic way, you know, in our brain, and we can articulate, but we know it. We experience it. So this morning, if you're struggling with doubts about your salvation, don't go, don't go evaluating the fruits of your lives. Don't go spending time just focusing on those sins, those lack of fruit, 
the areas that you're aware that you need to grow in, but focus on the gospel. Refresh, refresh yourself in the promises of God. And the consequence of doing that as you're freshly amazed by Christ, fruit will be seen. I often say when Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. He doesn't say, if you love me, you'll keep my commands, like some of us might say to our children or somebody. But Jesus says, if you love me, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. So let's fall more and more in love with Jesus. How do we do that? Focus on the gospel. Go to the cross, the place where he demonstrates his love more than any other place. Robert Murray McShane. Quote, you've probably heard many times, but I love it. For every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus. Often when we're going through these, these situations, we can look ourselves... Look away from yourself. Look to Jesus. Look to Christ. I just want to close with this. I, I read this hymn. I don't know the music, so you'd be relieved because I couldn't even sing it if I wanted to. <coughs> but it's a, it's a hymn written by uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. It really has encouraged and thrilled me as I read it, and I trust it will do to you as well. So I think it's going to come up. Rejoice, believer in the Lord. Who makes your cause his own. The hope that's built upon his word can ne'er be overthrown. Though many foes beset your road and feeble is your arm, your life is hid with Christ in God beyond the reach of harm. Weak as you are, you shall not faint, or fainting shall not die. Jesus, the strength of every saint, will aid you from on high. Though sometimes unperceived by sense, Faith sees him always near, a guide, a glory, a defense. Then what have you to fear? As surely as he overcame and triumphed once for you, so surely that love, his name, to triumph in him too. Let's pray.